Mr. Justice Black delivered the opinion of the court. The Respondent, Board of Education of Union Free School District No. 9, New Hyde Park, New York, acting in its official capacity under state law, directed the school district's principal to cause the following prayer to be said aloud by each class in the presence of a teacher at the beginning of each school day. Quote, Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee, and we beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country, unquote. This daily procedure was adopted on the recommendation of the State Board of Regents, a governmental agency created by the state constitution to which the New York legislature has granted broad supervisory, executive, and legislative powers over the state's public school system. These state officials composed the prayer which they recommended and published as a part of their Statement on Moral and Spiritual Training in the Schools, saying, quote, We believe that this statement will be subscribed to by all men and women of goodwill, and we call upon all of them to aid in giving life to our program. Unquote. Shortly after the practice of reciting the Regent's Prayer was adopted by the school district, the parents of ten pupils brought this action in a New York state court, insisting that the use of this official prayer in the public schools was contrary to the beliefs, religions, or religious practices of both themselves and their children. Among other things, these parents challenged the constitutionality of both the state law authorizing the school district to direct the use of prayer in public schools and the school district's regulation ordering the recitation of this particular prayer on the ground that these actions of official government agencies violate that part of the First Amendment of the federal constitution, which commands that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, a command which was made applicable to the state of New York by the 14th Amendment of the said Constitution. The New York Court of Appeals, over the dissents of Judges Dye and Fold, sustained an order of the lower state courts, which had upheld the power of New York to use the Regent's Prayer as a part of the daily procedures of its public schools, so long as the schools did not compel any pupil to join in the prayer over his or his parents' objection. We granted Sir Girari to review this important decision involving rights protected by the First and Fourteenth Amendments. We think that, by using its public school system to encourage recitation of the region's prayer, the State of New York has adopted a practice wholly inconsistent with the Establishment Clause. There can, of course, be no doubt that New York's program of daily classroom invocation of God's blessings, as prescribed in the Regent's Prayer, is a religious activity. It is a solemn avowal of divine faith and supplication 
for the blessings of the Almighty. The nature of such a prayer has always been religious. None of the respondents has denied this, and the trial court expressly so found. Quote, the religious nature of prayer was recognized by Jefferson and has been concurred in by theological writers, the United States Supreme Court, and state courts and administrative officials, including New York's Commissioner of Education. A committee of the New York legislature has agreed, unquote. End quote. The Board of Regents, as amicus curiae, the respondents, and interveners, all concede the religious nature of prayer, but seek to distinguish this prayer because it is based on our spiritual heritage, unquote. The petitioners contend, among other things, that the state laws requiring or permitting use of the Regents' prayer must be struck down as a violation of the Establishment Clause because that prayer was composed by governmental officials as part of a governmental program to further religious beliefs. For this reason, petitioners argue, the state's use of the Regent's Prayer in its public school system breaches the constitutional wall of separation between church and state. We agree with that contention since we think that the constitutional prohibition against laws respecting an establishment of religion must at least mean that in this country it is no part of the business of government to compose official prayers for any group of the American people to recite as part of a religious program carried on by government. It is a matter of history that this very practice of establishing governmentally composed prayers for religious services was one of the reasons which caused many of our early colonists to leave England and seek religious freedom in America. The Book of Common Prayer, which was created under governmental direction and which was approved by Acts of Parliament in 1548 and 1549, set out in minute detail the accepted form and content of prayer and other religious ceremonies to be used in the established, tax-supported Church of England. The controversies over the book and what should be its content repeatedly threatened to disrupt the peace of that country as the accepted forms of prayer in the established church changed with the views of the particular ruler that happened to be in control at the time. Powerful groups representing some of the varying religious views of the people struggled among themselves to impress their particular views upon the government and obtain amendments of the book more suitable to their respective notions of how religious services should be conducted in order that the official religious establishment would advance their particular religious beliefs. Other groups, lacking the necessary political power to influence the government on the matter, decided to leave England and its established church and seek freedom in America from England's governmentally ordained and supported religion. 
It is an unfortunate fact of history that when some of the very groups which had most strenuously opposed the established Church of England found themselves sufficiently in control of colonial governments in this country to write their own prayers into law, they passed laws making their own religion the official religion of their respective colonies. Indeed, as late as the time of the Revolutionary War, there were established churches in at least eight of the thirteen former colonies and established religions in at least four of the other five. But the successful revolution against English political domination was shortly followed by intense opposition to the practice of establishing religion by law. This opposition crystallized rapidly into an effective political force in Virginia, where the minority religious groups such as Presbyterians, Lutherans, Quakers, and Baptists had gained such strength that the adherents to the established Episcopal Church were actually a minority themselves. In 1785 through 1786, those opposed to the established church, led by James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, who though themselves not members of any of these dissenting religious groups, opposed all religious establishments by law on grounds of principle, obtained the enactment of the famous Virginia Bill for Religious Liberty, by which all religious groups were placed on an equal footing so far as the state was concerned. Similar, though less far-reaching, legislation was being considered and passed in other states. By the time of the adoption of the Constitution, our history shows that there was a widespread awareness among many Americans of the dangers of a union of church and state. These people knew, some of them from bitter personal experience, that one of the greatest dangers to the freedom of the individual to worship in his own way lay in the government's placing its official stamp of approval on one particular kind of prayer or one particular form of religious services. They knew the anguish, hardship, and bitter strife that could come when zealous religious groups struggled with one another to obtain the government's stamp of approval from each king, queen, or protector that came to temporary power. The Constitution was intended to avert a part of this danger by leaving the government of this country in the hands of the people rather than in the hands of any monarch. But this safeguard was not enough. Our founders were no more willing to let the content of their prayers and their privilege of praying whenever they pleased be influenced by the ballot box than they were to let all these vital matters of personal conscience depend upon the succession of monarchs. The First Amendment was added to the Constitution to stand as a guarantee that neither the power nor the prestige of the federal government would be used to control, support, or influence the kinds of prayer the American people can say. 
that the people's religions must not be subjected to the pressures of government for change each time a new political administration is elected to office. Under that amendment's prohibition against governmental establishment of religion, as reinforced by the provisions of the 14th Amendment, government in this country, be it state or federal, is without power to prescribe by law any particular form of prayer which is to be used as an official prayer in carrying on any program of governmentally sponsored religious activity. There can be no doubt that New York's state prayer program officially establishes the religious beliefs embodied in the Regent's prayer. The respondent's argument to the contrary, which is largely based upon the contention that the Regent's prayer is non-denominational, and the fact that the program, as modified and approved by state courts, does not require all pupils to recite the prayer, but permits those who wish to do so to remain silent or be excused from the room, ignores the essential nature of the program's constitutional defects. Neither the fact that the prayer may be denominationally neutral, nor the fact that its observance on the part of the students is voluntary, can serve to free it from the limitations of the Establishment Clause, as it might from the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment, both of which are operative against the state by virtue of the Fourteenth Amendment. Although these two clauses may, in certain instances, overlap, they forbid two quite different kinds of governmental encroachment upon religious freedom. The Establishment Clause unlike the Free Exercise Clause, does not depend on any showing of direct governmental compulsion and is violated by the enactment of laws which establish an official religion whether those laws operate directly to coerce non-observing individuals or not. This is not to say, of course, that laws officially prescribing a particular form of religious worship do not involve coercion of such individuals. When the power, prestige, and financial support of government is placed behind a particular religious belief, the indirect coercive pressure upon religious minorities to conform to the prevailing officially approved religion is plain. But the purposes underlying the Establishment Clause go much further than that. Its first and most immediate purpose rested on the belief that a union of government and religion tends to destroy government and to degrade religion. The history of governmentally established religion, both in England and in this country, showed that whenever government had allied itself with one particular form of religion, the inevitable result had been that it had incurred the hatred, disrespect, and even contempt of those who held contrary beliefs. That same history showed that many people had lost their respect for any religion that had relied upon the support of government to spread its faith. The Establishment Clause thus stands 
as an expression of principle on the part of the founders of our Constitution that religion is too personal, too sacred, too holy to permit its unhallowed perversion by a civil magistrate. Another purpose of the Establishment Clause rested upon an awareness of the historical fact that governmentally established religions and religious persecutions go hand in hand. The founders knew that only a few years after the Book of Common Prayer became the only accepted form of religious services in the established Church of England, an act of uniformity was passed to compel all Englishmen to attend those services and to make it a criminal offense to conduct or attend religious gatherings of any other kind. A law which was consistently flouted by dissenting religious groups in England and which contributed to widespread persecutions of people like John Bunyan, who persisted in holding unlawful religious meetings, to the great disturbance and distraction of the good subjects of this kingdom. And they knew that similar persecutions had received the sanction of law in several of the colonies in this country soon after the establishment of official religions in those colonies. It was in large part to get completely away from this sort of systematic religious persecution that the founders brought into being our nation, our constitution, and our Bill of Rights, with its prohibition against any governmental establishment of religion. The New York laws officially prescribing the region's prayer are inconsistent both with the purposes of the Establishment Clause and with the Establishment Clause itself. It has been argued that to apply the Constitution in such a way as to prohibit state laws respecting an establishment of religious services in public schools is to indicate a hostility toward religion or toward prayer. Nothing, of course, could be more wrong. The history of man is inseparable from the history of religion, and perhaps it is not too much to say that since the beginning of that history, many people have devoutly believed that more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. It was doubtless largely due to men who believed this that there grew up a sentiment that caused men to leave the cross-currents of officially established state religions and religious persecution in Europe and come to this country filled with the hope that they could find a place in which they could pray when they pleased to the God of their faith in the language they chose. And there were men of this same faith in the power of prayer who led the fight for adoption of our Constitution and also for our Bill of Rights with the very guarantees of religious freedom that forbid the sort of governmental activity which New York has attempted here. These men knew that the First Amendment, which tried to put an end to governmental control of religion and of prayer, was not written to destroy either. 
They knew, rather, that it was written to quiet, well-justified fears, which nearly all of them felt arising out of an awareness that governments of the past had shackled men's tongues to make them speak only the religious thoughts that government wanted them to speak and to pray only to the God that government wanted them to pray to. It is neither sacrilegious nor anti-religious to say that each separate government in this country should stay out of the business of writing or sanctioning official prayers and leave that purely religious function to the people themselves and to those the people choose to look to for religious guidance. It is true that New York's establishment of its Regent's Prayer as an officially approved religious doctrine of that state does not amount to a total establishment of one particular religious sect to the exclusion of all others. That, indeed, the governmental endorsement of that prayer seems relatively insignificant when compared to the governmental encroachments upon religion which were commonplace 200 years ago. To those who may subscribe to the view that, because the region's official prayer is so brief and general, there can be no danger to religious freedom in its governmental establishment. However, it may be appropriate to say in the words of James Madison, the author of the First Amendment, quote, It is proper to take alarm at the first experiment on our liberties. Who does not see that the same authority which can establish Christianity in exclusion of all other religions may establish with the same ease any particular sect of Christians in exclusion of all other sects? That the same authority which can force a citizen to contribute three pence only of his property for the support of any one establishment, may force him to conform to any other establishment in all cases whatsoever. The judgment of the Court of Appeals of New York is reversed, and the cause remanded for further proceedings not inconsistent with this opinion. Reversed and remanded. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to what SCOTUS wrote us.